Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, we come asking that we would hear a word from you. And as we think about these words that were just read, this ancient prayer, we are reminded of those across the world who are offering those same prayers that you would break the bow, that you would shatter the spear, that you would burn the shields with fire. Those who fear bombs that can shake cities and move mountains, who long for the heavenly city, the peace of a river that is the source of life running through it to come and invade the earthly city. God, we ask that this would be a reality, that heaven would come to earth, that your people would know your presence that they would know that you are the rock and the fortress. And we ask God that in this time we would hear what it is that you would have us listen to, that may we draw near to your presence. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, hi, my name is Stephen. It's my privilege to serve on staff here. It's good to see you all. Um, early in my 20s, I spent my summers up at a uh, camp outside of Yosemite. It was, um, 
uh, working on the crew there. And what drew me to this particular camp was one of the programs that they had, which was kind of like a two-week intense residential discipleship uh, you know, training for students who were in high school and in college. And it was kind of this, this, this space where these kids would go and we would you know, be committed to these intense times of prayer and study. And we would spend the rest of the time doing work projects like clearing out these hundred foot uh, cedar trees to do fire mitigation on the forest floor. I chopped one down with an axe once. It was awesome. You don't feel quite alive when you're felling a big old tree with an axe just because you can. And then in the evening worships, we would, you know, uh, play games. We would hang out. We would sing songs. We would usually be sore and tired from a hard day's work. But my favorite part was the weekends where we would do this overnight backpacking trip where we'd walk up to, hike up to one of the glacial lakes up there high in the Sierras, the kind of place where once you got above the tree line, if a full moon was out, you didn't need a headlamp because it was so bright that it could guide your steps. And we'd set up camp. We'd wake up to glassy water water, we'd wake up to crisp mountain air. And then for the whole day, we would do nothing. Just sit and relax. This was pre-2007. iPhone wasn't a thing. You wouldn't even have reception if it was. We would swim. We would make our way out to uh, a little overhang where we would jump 40 feet off of a mountain into the water. You have not lived until you have had the breath knocked out of your lungs by hitting that icy cold water on the shadow side of a mountain. And then we'd eat lunch. We'd take naps. We would just soak in the beauty of creation. Well, one summer at the start of a session, uh, we had a college student with us named Josh who was coming out this very, very dark season. He had to be convinced to come and spend another summer with us, and he was reluctant. All the things that he had been carrying with him into the summer came spilling out one night over the campfire as I was sitting with him and my friend Ryan, and he talked about how he experienced this overwhelming sense of despair in his faith, this prolonged period in which God was way more of an abstraction than a living presence, and God was an odd idea at that. Uh, prayer for him had always seemed like a strange thing, but now he was convinced that it was pointless. I mean, if God is all-knowing, God is all-seeing, God created everything, surely he does not need my input in how to run the world, so what good does it do to pray? Well, the next day we went out on the top of a, an excursion to the top of Madeira Peak. Uh, Josh and I were out front, we were having conversation, punctuated by these periods of silence, and we came to the summit, and after all the other campers had kind of ambled up and found their places to sit and be still and just take in the view. Ryan walked over and the three of us, all guys in our you know, early uh, 20s, uh, late teens, standing out there looking out over the vista, 10,000 feet up in the air, just taking it in, our whole lives stretched out before us. And I asked him, like, so what do you think about when you stand out on this view? And Josh said as he stared into the distance, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, all I can think about right now is how small I am. My friend Ryan slapped him on the back and said, good, lean into that. That is as good a place as any to start praying. And he kind of walked away. After a while, I looked at Josh, and I could tell it was the combination of those words and that view that unlocked something in him. And for just a moment, he was able to step back and see himself from God's perspective with this simple encouragement. 
Ryan led him to a place to see what he could not see, to this place of stillness from which prayer emerges. You see, contrary to what we think, prayer does not begin with us. It begins with God, and it doesn't begin with speaking, but it begins with the place of stillness and the sight that comes from that. As the writer Philip Yancey put it, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. And so as we lean into this series on prayer during the season of Lent, we need to learn the posture from which prayer rises. And maybe it is best summed up in a line of this prayer from David, a person who wrote more prayers than anyone else in the Bible by a long shot, who can help us see what we can't see on our own. Be still and know that I am God. As my friend Ryan said, that's as good a place to start as any. Be still and know that I am God. Now, it sounds relatively straightforward, right? But in reality, we all know this stillness is anything but. And because of the way of life that you and I call normal, it, it actually really is something of an oddity in human history. I mean, consider this. The, the first public clock that struck the canonical hours was erected in Milan, Italy in the year 1335. Prior to that, mechanical clocks driven by weights attached to these large bells were kind of a standard feature of English monasteries where the ordered life of fixed hour prayer that we see in the life of Jesus was the whole reason that those towers and those clocks were invented so people could keep the time so they could pray. They could pray on the hour. By 1370, the chimes of the clock had begun to shape the working days of the citizens in Colmar, Germany, marking a shift in the Western world and how people relate to time. According to the historian Jacques Legoff, prior to the clock, life was dominated by agrarian rhythms, free of haste, careless of exactitude, unconcerned by productivity. Sounds glorious, right? But the clock changed all of that. Time shifted from a, a natural uh, sequencing of sunrise and sunset into these distinct 24-hour uh, units that dominate all of daily life. And there's a deep irony in that, I think, that what began as an aid to prayer, to this place of stillness, this place of communion with God, became in our time the principal driver of movement, of business, of production, and a bottom line, to the point that time is no longer something that we experience. Time is something we manage, and we manage it to maximum effect, and productivity is no longer a slice of the pie called life. It's the whole pie now. That shift was accelerated again in the year 1879, the year that Thomas Edison created the electric light bulb, which freed us from the need to stop working when it got dark outside. Now, people had been, prior to this, rebelling against the darkness by using uh, torches and you know, other kinds of, of lamps that were based with oil, but with the electric light, suddenly, nighttime became open for business. And the result of that is that people stayed up later and they slept less. Virginia Tech historian Roger Urquhart believes that before industrialization, it was common for people to sleep up to 11 hours per night. And his research led him to discover once a common pattern, what he believed was the dominant pattern for people was called segmented or divided sleep, which was roughly these two four-hour periods marked by, divided by a period of about two hours of calm wakefulness. 
inciting all kinds of hundreds of historical references. People use this time of stillness in the middle of the night to, to read, to, to pray, to write, to have sex, to, to quietly converse. Apparently, this was a time really conducive to creativity, to reflection. Researchers at Stanford have found that this practice of segmented sleep also coincides and is linked with higher levels of prolactin being produced in the brain, the chemical associated with relaxation, which to me begs the important question. If you wake up in the middle of the night and have this period of calm wakefulness and you use that time to have sex, are you doubly relaxed? I'm willing to do the research. Meanwhile, according to our friends at the CDC, 40% of people in America get less than seven hours of sleep per night. Interestingly enough, Georgia is among the worst offenders up there in Kentucky as well. I don't know what's going on here, but it's great to see a map by the CDC that's not about COVID, right? Get it? That's four hours less sleep than people had two centuries ago. And we wonder why is it hard to be still? The light bulb allowed us to work longer to where the average worker in the 1800s worked twice as many hours as we do now. And then came the post-war boom of the 1950s and the 1960s, which saw all kinds of labor-saving devices hit the market, like electric dishwashers and microwaves, washers and dryers came into the world. And with the proliferation of all these time-saving devices, sociologists all throughout the 1950s thought that there would be a forthcoming crisis of leisure time. That the biggest problem we face in the future would be what to do with all the spare time we have. In 1967, there was testimony before a Senate subcommittee that predicted by the year 1985, people would either work 22 hours a week or 27 weeks out of the year, or they could retire at age 38 because of all the leisure time we'd have. Any 38-year-olds retired out there? Now, obviously, none of that happened. Instead, as a Manhattan architect put it in an interview, technology is increasing the heartbeat. We are inundated with information. The mind can't handle it all. The pace is so fast now, I sometimes feel like a gunfighter dodging bullets. And that interview, incidentally, took place in 1992, well before the 2007 invention of the iPhone which along with Facebook and Twitter officially kicked off the digital age and carried productivity from the workspace to your pocket and constant connectedness to wherever you are in the world. And then that phone, on that phone, your scrolling habits, your political affiliation, your online shopping profile, all that stuff gets dumped into an algorithm designed intentionally to grab your intention. So make no mistake, while you bought your phone, it does not work for you. It works for some company, multi-billion dollar company in San Francisco, and you are the product. Your attention is for sale, right along with your peace of mind. This led Microsoft researcher Linda Stone to coin the term continuous partial attention and said that the state of constant interruption and digital distraction is the new normal. So how's everybody doing? Just a little shot of arm and joy to get you going this morning, right? 
No, my, my point in all of this is just to give a name to that feeling that we have all the time. Because if we're honest, we are all too familiar with the restlessness and the pull to productivity that comes at the expense of being still. All across the modern world, people are busy. It cuts across ethnic lines, it cuts across gender lines, it cuts across stage of life, class. We are always go, 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 hard charging to the goal, always bent towards speed and efficiency, always in a hurry, and cannot help but translate into the inner pace of our lives. Philosopher Dallas Willard once claimed that hurry is the great enemy of souls in our day. Being busy is mostly a condition of our outer world that is having many things to do. Being hurried is a problem of the soul. It's being so preoccupied with myself and what I have to do that I'm no longer able to be fully present with God and fully present with you. There is no way a soul can thrive when it is hurried. And I got to tell you, when I first heard that uh, many years ago, I, I, I have to admit that I thought, come on, hurry is the big enemy of the soul? Really? Well, there was a survey in which analyzed responses of 20,000 self-described Christians who determined what obstacles were the biggest ones that determined their spiritual growth or not. The number one distraction from life with God was busyness. And incidentally, ranking right up there at the top of professions, right up there with doctors and lawyers of, of professions who marked a, a high degree of busyness was guess what? Pastors, yep. I mean, not this pastor, my other pastors. You know, ones who don't read the research. Look, you know this. I know you know this. We live in a culture that's been apprenticing us for years into a way of life that requires perpetual motion. Ain't nothing gonna break your stride. Nothing gonna slow you down. Oh no, you gotta keep on moving. And this mindset is changing the way that we live. It's changing the way that we operate in the world. And maybe the most seductive myth out there of all of that is that, it, that the culprit is out there, that it's, that it's somehow you know, the culture in which we live. But, but what if the exterior reality that frames everything that we do in, in modern life isn't a mirror reflection of what's going on out in the culture, but is instead the natural overflow of our over-busy lives? I mean, whatever talk there was of a global reset uh, of our work habits on the tail end of the pandemic, whatever talk happened there, it certainly was short-lived. And in some ways, the answer to the kind of forced stillness that came about two years ago was just other people finding new ways to get busy and get productive. Case in point, I came across this article uh, a few months back about the open secret of people realizing that their work-from-home situation allowed them to have so much free time that they could take up to as many as four full-time benefited jobs. And the way they would do this is playing a bit of a shell game with their employers and juggling multiple Zoom calls so that nobody knew what was going on. Don't get any ideas, people. And into this reality, this reality of our hearts, this, this world of perpetual motion, we hear these words, be still and know that I am God. If stillness is an avenue to knowing God, is it any wonder we have trouble hearing? 
And don't get me wrong, while I, I care deeply about your emotional health, it's a big part of how we think about spirituality here. What I'm talking about is way bigger than your ability to cope with a fast-moving world or an overcrowded schedule. I'm talking about your hope. I'm talking about your spiritual vitality. Your life with God is going to have a very low threshold if you don't know how to be still. And you might be thinking, you know, sure, yeah, I mean, but wasn't that psalm written in an agrarian society without, you know, a whole lot going on? It's got to be easy to be still in a world that wasn't as complex as ours, right? I mean, it's not like King David had this global microchip, you know, shortage to worry about. I mean, he didn't have the pressure like I have of having to create TikToks that the whole internet depends on. Look, I get it. I know you're busy. I know you really do have very important things going on. You have real demands that take real time. You have real people who depend on you. You have employers who are looking for you for productivity. You have employees who are looking at you for direction. I get all that. I'm not making light of any of that. But I do want you to just keep in mind that David's life was not all green pastures and quiet waters. He is writing as leader of a nation where the threat of war was constant, where whether that was from neighboring uh, you know, uh, nations or internal factions. I mean, he moved from being the previous king's golden child to having that same king chuck spears at him, not once, but twice. He, he went from this place where his, his own son was trying to kill him a lot of the Psalms were written while he was on the run. And so his reality was more like writing poetry in Kiev than it was drafting mindfulness slogans at a seaside resort. The call to be still and know. These words that he puts in the mouth of God while he is in the midst of despair, of conflict, of anxiety. And in that place, he is still able to prioritize the practice of actively seeking God in stillness, listening for God and seeking reality from God's point of view, trusting that the Spirit is at work even when the world around him is on fire. So yes, I care deeply about your stress level. I care about your ability to find a, a decent rhythm with all the things that are crowding your dance card. But I'm not really talking about a disorganized calendar here. I'm talking about a disordered heart. When David prays, be still and know, he's not inviting you into a meditation technique. He is inviting you to carve out and hollow out space where you can be present with the living God. And this relationship is based on trust, not on demands, not on what you bring to the table. So if the enemy of spiritual life is hurry, then is there a practice that we see from the life of Jesus that will allow us to have an antidote to our chronic restlessness that will allow us to be still? Yes. And among them is the kind of prayer in which we don't so much seek to speak, but we seek to listen we enjoy silence and stillness with God. It's actually not a stretch, I think, to say that your ability to be silent with someone is kind of like an indicator of your degree of intimacy with that person. I mean, you think about, you know, uh, Jill and I have been uh, dating, well, we've been married for almost 18 years now. We went on our first date about 20 years ago. 
And the, the early days in which we were dating, you know, we had to fill every moment with chatter. Uh, we've actually had to learn this ability to grow still with each other. Early on in our, in our uh, dating days, I moved out to New Jersey. I called her all the time. I did not realize that I didn't have nationwide roaming or unlimited calling. I'm pretty sure all of the 5G towers were funded by my cell phone bill the first year that I moved to New Jersey. She got off work at 10 o'clock in California, which was 1 o'clock in the morning in New Jersey. And so we would talk. I would forsake my 8 o'clock a.m. Old Testament class. I was fascinated about every single detail about her. And I was afraid that any amount of silence would mean that she, you know, thought I wasn't interested in what she was saying. But a lot has changed over the years. I'm still interested. I mean, there are depths and dimensions that surprise me to this day. I will come home and there will be all kinds of new projects in the house. And I have absolutely no idea what was going on there. And it's always a mystery. And it's awesome. But we have this capacity now to simply rest in the comfort of stillness in each other's presence. We don't have this need to fill all of the silence with words. There is a kind of intimacy and love that grows in that space that is just as vital and just as deep, maybe even deeper than the space that we fill with words. And if that is how intimacy develops in us, two very finite and very flawed people, one flawed more than the other, then I think it has all kinds of meaning in our life with God. In fact, I think you can make the case that our discomfort with the idea of being silent before God is directly related to our unfamiliarity with God. We are so wired when we pray for something to happen. And so if nothing else, we will fill all of our prayers with the sound of our own voice. But what if what needs to happen is for us to just embrace the stillness and learn how to listen? At heart, listening prayer is the practice of focusing our attention on God and enjoying the gift of shared presence. Letting go of our words to just be with Jesus. I went to a conference recently and I was reminded of a story about Mother Teresa who was once asked by a journalist what she says to God when she prays. And her response was this, I don't talk, I simply listen. So the journalist shot back, well, what does God say to you? And she said, he also doesn't talk. He also just listens. So after a few awkward moments, she said, look, if you can't understand the meaning of what I've just said, I'm sorry, but I really can't explain it any better way. I like that story because prayer that is listening for God in stillness causes us to lay down our assumptions about what is supposed to happen. And my guess is that we avoid this because when the noise from the outside is gone, we're, then we're just forced to sit with the noise that's inside of us. In that place when it's just us and God, and we start to wonder deep down when we're quiet enough to be stripped away from all of the distractions around us, we come head on with all of the, the rough and the unpolished parts of our lives. We wonder if God is really going to want to sit with me in that place. And stillness allows for us to confront our fears and our doubts so God can start to peel all those layers away. So I want to finish by suggesting just quickly three ways that we can partner with the Spirit in this practice of listening to God in prayer. And the first is simply to remember that it's not about what we do. Listening grounds us in humility. It frees us from the illusion that it's up to us to determine what happens. 
Prayer is an invitation to see reality from God's perspective. We, we started last week with this invitation to pray as you can. And if you're anything like me, you don't want to start something unless you know you're going to be good at it. But listening and, 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 and embracing God in silence and prayer is not a technique to master. It is a relationship to enter into. And like any relationship, you need to drop the pretense of having to perform in order to earn love. Roberta Bondi, who used to teach over at Emory University here, uh, said that if you are praying, you're already doing it right. And I've read a lot about early Christian spirituality, about the lives of the saints, of these people whose lives were just uh, overflowing with the, the nearness of the Spirit's presence. And I can tell you one thing for sure. There are no spiritual masters out there. There are just people who keep showing up in prayer ordinary people because when it comes to prayer we are all beginners some of the deepest times in my spiritual life when I have come when I can sense tangibly God's love God's presence but there are a good number of times where honestly I feel like I would have been more productive doing something else but even in those times stillness is a gift and that leads to the second thing, that listening allows us to normalize boredom and distraction. My mom used to say to me when I was a kid, uh, whenever I would say I'm bored, she would say, only boring people are bored, Stephen. I think that did all kinds of damage. Don't say that to your kids. But in a world that is constantly abuzz with all kinds of distraction, where we're, we're constantly craving that next dopamine hit that comes from scrolling on our phone or getting that like or whatever all that stuff, you know, tapping our phones. We, we carve out this space for silence and stillness because it's really, really hard. You're going to have to cultivate this habit of putting anything away that's going to buzz or ding or, or come at you. And you're going to have to prepare yourself for the reality that nothing earth-shattering is going to happen just because you were quiet. That the spirit is not contractually obligated to show up just because you put your phone away. And so think of the boredom that you experience as a kind of offering to God, a kind of laying up of the false idol of always having to be comforted or feel good or feel engaged or feel productive. Because in those moments, God is molding you and God is shaping you. The very first time I experienced uh, regular silence was in a monastery three times a day for 10 minutes. And I got to tell you, it was absolutely excruciating at first. It was like an ancient uh, saint of the church who said that uh, the mind is like a donkey going round and around in a mill and cannot step out of the circle to which it's tethered. That was me for sure. And I found that when all the external noise was muted, the inner dialogue was given free reign and it was not always pretty. But something began to happen over the course of the week. I began to notice that my internal you know, pattern was kind of slowing down. And I wasn't thinking about what I was going to do next, but what I was doing now and who I was doing it with. Two months later, after I left that place, I craved the stillness. And now I find that each distraction is simply an opportunity to turn back to God. Which brings me to the last thing is that listening leads us to trust. In the end, be still and know that I am God is as much a promise as it is a command. It is an invitation to see reality from God's perspective. That not only are we incredibly small 
As my friend found out that one day when he stood outside of the mountain vista and looked up at the vast expanse ahead, but also that the God who created the very ground that we walked on, the moon that guided our steps that night, desires to be with us. We not only see our smallness, but we see how valuable we are in God's eyes. And so we can put our productivity and our busyness aside for just a moment to release control back to God. Stillness is this place where God moves from the periphery of our lives back to the center, and that is the place from which prayer emerges naturally. And as it turns out, the psalm doesn't end there with that whole be still and know that I am God part. It goes on to say, I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That is the destination of our prayer. It is a promise that God's presence will become a reality, that God's reign, that God's rule will become visible in the here and now. It means that the peace and the flourishing of the kingdom is going to come rushing in. And the way that God is going to accomplish this is through a people who have learned how to be still. It's an unexpected ending. Be still and pray and the world around you that seems like it's on fire is going to get renewed. Because from that place become a person who's so filled up with the source of life that you are ready to be poured out for the sake of the world. You draw near to God so God will shape you for the world. I'm reminded of the Celtic monks of Lindisfarne who would commit themselves to prayer and stillness and then go out when the tide was low, out into the world, and they would have this disciplined life of prayer, but they were intentional to go out and meet the needs of their neighbors. They were intentional, but they were also ready to be interrupted, never in a hurry. And I'm reminded of Jesus who was intentional as well. This whole idea of Lent being a 40-day period takes place place because of the 40 days he spent in the wilderness in preparation for his ministry, resting in the stillness of the Father, watching to see what the Father did so he could go and do likewise. He took time for prayer seriously, resting in the stillness of the Father's presence. And while he was always busy, while he always had a lot to do, you take a look at one 24-hour segment of Jesus' life, you see that it is packed to the gills, but he was never in a hurry. He was always ready to be interrupted by whoever needed him. Always ready to be present, to be poured out for the sake of the other. Prayer is this place of stillness that shapes you, not for yourself, but for the world. And so, friends, what will it take for you to carve out a space of stillness to be present to God, to allow God to be present to you, and in that space to shape you for the world? I'm going to ask Jeremy to come forward, and as he sings, first words of his song are, Be still. That is the invitation for you, friends. May this song be a prayer. May it be an offering to the Lord. Child, when you've lost your way. 
can see the storm is raging inside and all around I'll come 